Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Hey, the title of this morning's message is The Church and the Powers of Hell. That title freaked some people out yesterday when I put that on the internet. I just want you to understand my decision-making process when I title a sermon, okay? The number one question I ask myself is, how metal is it? And I want to say that this is a 10 out of 10. Can you hear Ozzy? Can you? Can you hear the crazy train? It's coming. All right. Hey, all right. We're going to do this this morning. That's what we do here at the Vineyard. We'll sell you a worship record and then we'll make Ozzy Osbourne references. If you can't handle that, there's a hundred other churches in Campbellsville. Um, all right. Yeah, 120. I've been, I stand corrected. All right, let's read the scripture this morning. This is out of Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 20. It's all on one slide. It goes like this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. I I love verse 20. It's hilarious. Especially like in a southern, you know, gospel evangelical society where we want to tell everybody about Jesus. Jesus is like, yeah, don't tell anybody. Super funny. All right. Here's what I want to do this morning. Um, For the past few weeks, I've been talking about church. I've been talking about why we do church. And I've mostly been talking out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse uh, 15, where Paul tells Timothy that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So we spent a couple weeks just talking about, well, what is the church? And Paul gives this amazing image, and he says, well, the church is the the pillar and the foundation of the truth, meaning that the church is that which holds up the truth in the world, namely the truth about who Jesus is, that he is God's son, that he is uh, the way, the truth, and the life, that, that who he is, that God's heart to us is revealed in his son. And the church, us, whatever it means to be the church, it's foundationally, it's this gathering of people who hold up this truth. Church isn't the truth, it simply holds up the truth. And I wanted to come to this this morning. I want to continue talking about church because here in 
Matthew chapter 16 is the first time that the word church is ever mentioned in the New Testament. Here we go. The first time. And so sometimes it's important to, to really pay attention to first mentions. Because sometimes, and almost always in first mentions, there, there's something that's akin to a blueprint for what will be constructed. And I don't know if you guys realize this, but sometimes um, things get added on. And then when you go back and you inspect the blueprint, you realize that was never in the plan. How many of you have ever seen a house in Kentucky that's been added on to a time or two? <laughs> yeah. I once saw a house trailer that had been added on onto a couple times, right? In Kentucky. That's what happens. We build on anything, you know? We'll build on to the doghouse. I've seen that too. Yeah. But have you ever seen like a house and you can sort of tell where the original house was and then there's like an addition and then there's like an addition on the addition? And then have you ever gone to a house where there's an addition on the addition? Have you ever noticed that sometimes that the additions are not built quite as well as the original part? Like you step on the the floor and it sags a little bit. Or maybe there's no insulation under there and it's really cold out in the addition, right? Yeah, that's kind of how church is too. 2,000 years later, when you inspect the blueprints, one of the things you find out is oftentimes there's been a load of stuff added on that maybe wasn't in the original design. And so maybe what we need to do, rather than maintain the square footage, is tear it off. Right? I don't know. And so that's what we want to do. We want to look at this scripture this morning because I think that it's not just the place where it's first mentioned, but I believe that it's in many ways a blueprint for what church is supposed to be. And we can, we can take this and we can receive it as the Word of God. And whatever doesn't need to stay, we could just take it off, if that's okay. First thing I want you to notice about the passage we looked at this morning is, is this. At least in the blueprints of the church, uh, Jesus is the one who's asking the questions. And it's one of the things I love most about this passage, but mostly because this passage is in many ways um, a window into the Jesus way. If you read the Gospels very much, one of the things that you see over and over is that Jesus might teach a little bit, but a lot of times he's the one who's asking the questions. In fact, he's almost always the one asking the questions. I love that. Uh, How many of you would like to be with Jesus and have him quiz you? This is instructive because one of the things I've realized in in my life, and maybe for most of my life, at least as it relates to my spiritual life, I've realized, especially lately, that I've mostly been the one who's asking the questions. Think about your prayer life. Right? Think about those moments, maybe when life gets difficult, or maybe you just want to think about your spiritual life in general. Maybe you're a little bit like me. I've noticed that for most of my adult life, I've been the one asking the questions. And I think this is really instructive because I've just realized that it's Jesus who is asking the questions. And let me just say, if you're asking questions to Jesus or to God, that's totally fine. I've got scripture for that. That's totally cool. We can do that too. But how many of us have any expectation that Jesus might be asking us a thing or two? Now, now, here's what I want to do. I want to widen the frame a little bit. And I want to ask you this question. What if, that were, what if that was what church was really about? 
what if the church wasn't just the place where you came and got answers, but what if the church was primarily the place where you first came and got questioned by Jesus? Let's widen that out. What if the church was not just where we got a few pat answers, but what if it was where we gathered and we first got questions and the person asking the question was Jesus himself? And what if this gathering didn't just supply us with answers and some sort of watered-down construct of comfort, but what if it was something about the gathering that stirred us and brought us into brand-new questions that we had never thought of? You know one of the reasons people come to church? It's not the only reason, but one of the reasons people come to church is because they want answers. But what if this gathering mostly gave us brand-new questions? The first thing we see here, in the first time that church is ever mentioned, the frame that sits around whatever church is, it's Jesus the questioner. Hmm. I think that's interesting. And let me just say this. I want to say this because we don't always catch it. The questions that Jesus is asking, they're dangerous questions. The context seems to point to this as well. First thing that Matthew tells us about this little episode is that they are in Caesarea Philippi. And if we just have a geography lesson here for a minute. Here's Israel. Jerusalem's way down here at the bottom. Caesarea Philippi, way up to the north. Read a Bible scholar two days ago. He said it was a two days walk from the Sea of Galilee. Read for that. Jesus was way away from his home territory. Jesus was on retreat with the disciples. Read for that. He was way away from Herod Antipas. And he was a good distance away from Pilate himself or any other governing authority. Why does that matter? Because the questions that Jesus wanted to ask his own disciples, these were not safe questions. These were dangerous questions. And he begins it kind of soft. Jesus asked the question, Who do people say that I am? And one of the ways that we know that this is a dangerous question is the answer that the disciples began to give him. They said, well, some people say, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're John. And some people are saying that maybe you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now, how many of you have read your Old Testament a little bit? What do all of these people have in common? They're prophets. Now, not only are they prophets and not only are they dead, but we have, to ask the self, we have to ask ourselves the question, why are they dead? How many of you realize that in the Old Testament, the one job you didn't want was the prophet? <laughs> Can I tell you right now, the one job you still don't want is the prophet. Yeah, some people are like, man, I'm a prophet. Uh, yeah, you don't want to start that. <laughs> you literally have no idea what you're talking about. The, the point I'm trying to make is, Jesus, it seems, has taken off up north and gotten away from the political atmosphere and got away from his hometown. And he begins to ask dangerous questions. The first question is, who do people say that I am? The answer that comes back to them is, people think that you're some sort of a prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets always spoke to power on behalf of the weak. And because of that, they always got killed. And who killed them? The kings. That's who killed them. So the first answer that we get back and the first... The first response that comes back really doubles down on this idea that whatever Jesus is talking about is dangerous. This is not like 
This is not insignificant stuff. This is dangerous, dangerous stuff. Jesus is actually a dangerous guy. And he oftentimes is asking us provocative questions. And he's actually leading us into dangerous answers. Now, you and I, we mostly read this and it's thoroughly domesticated by our own time and presumed knowledge of the situation. But, this is the essence of Jesus and it's, I believe, the essence of the church. And so Jesus ramps it up at this point and he says, well, who do you guys say that I am? And to that I would like to say, this gives us another window into what the church is. The church is always about who Jesus is. That's, that's always the center. And it's not just a general question about who people think he is, but it's always intensely personal. What is church? Uh, church is where we gather, and Jesus begins to ask us, oftentimes, highly dangerous questions about who he is. And he's not just asking us as a corporate body, but he's asking us as individuals. And he's, and he's asking us something that's intensely personal. And if we really hear him, and if we really begin to respond and answer, it's going to require something of us. That's what church is. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves even this morning is, who is Jesus to me? And what does any of this mean? Now, most of us know the story. And one of the things that we do in the story is we jump right to... Jesus is my personal Savior. And let me just say, He is. He totally is our personal Savior. But one of the things that we need to see in this story, if we can put it back up, is that Peter's answer is not, Jesus is my personal Savior. In fact, in fact, nobody even had the conception of personal Savior in this moment. It's not there. That's actually not the story the Bible's telling us at this point. What, is, what does Peter say about Jesus? You are the what? The Messiah, Son of the living God. Messiah. Also, another loaded, loaded word. Basically, Peter tells Jesus, you're the one Israel, like our home tribe, our home team. You're the one that we've been waiting on. Basically, what Peter is telling Jesus is, you're the true king. Now, Pit that against all the other kings who were in the territory. You're the true king. That's what Peter is telling him. It was intensely political. You think America's intensely political right now? We have nothing on the moment that we're reading about right now. It's intensely political. You're the one who's essentially going to overthrow the government. You're going to get the worship in the temple right. And you're going to supplant all the rulers of the day. That's what Peter tells him. You're the guy. The expectation was, you're the guy who's going to come and you're going to take, you're going to take the throne away from, uh, from Trump and you're going to take the White House back and you're going to set it on fire and you're going to get all the worship right and you're the guy we've been waiting for. And by the way, we've been waiting for like 2,500 years. That's what he tells him. This is dangerous stuff, right? Now, you're, now you know why Jesus got out of town, right? Yeah. And then Peter says, not only are you the Messiah, but you're the Son of God. Also loaded. We don't hear it like that. You and I hear it like, oh, of course. You know, Jesus, Son of God, second person of the Trinity. And actually what Peter is saying here is not, I believe you're the second person of the Trinity. In fact, um, that wasn't a conception. 
That wasn't in anybody's brain. People didn't yet get that. And, and, and I personally believe that no one would get that until Jesus was raised from the dead. Basically, what Son of God meant was, you're God's special ruler. You're God's special king who was adopted into a special purpose. I'm just going to read you one little section out of 2 Samuel. This is, this is the thing that would have been in Peter's mind. Like, Peter knew this book really good. I want to read you a little section out of 2 Samuel. And this is where the Lord is talking to David about who's going to forever rule Israel. This is what it says. It says, Furthermore, the Lord declares that He'll make a house for you. He's talking about David. He'll make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you are died and buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your own offspring, and I will make His kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will forever secure His royal throne forever. Verse 14, I will be His father, and He will be my son. So when Peter says, you're, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, he's thinking 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. You're going to be this ruler king who has some kind of a special connection with God. And it's almost like God will be his father and you will be his son. No one's thinking second person of the Trinity. No one's thinking that. Not only that, but it's also intensely political again. Because one of the titles that the Caesars had in Rome at that time was Son of God. So when Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the king that's above all the other kings, you're going to set it right. And then when he says, son of God, this thing is getting intensely, intensely serious. Well, what about us today? The reason I want to bring this up is because we mostly identify with Jesus as Savior. Especially in the church. Um... In the church, we talk all the time about being saved. But church, first and foremost, first mention, church, first and foremost, is about seeing Jesus as the king. Is he the savior? You better believe it. But church is first and foremost about seeing Jesus as the king. Or to put it another way, it's first and foremost about seeing Jesus as the president of all the presidents. King is still better, by the way. And what that means is, what that means is, we yield our lives to Him. What is church? Church is where we're confronted with the reality of Jesus' authority, and church is the community of the yielded. That was actually a really good thing right there. That was super good. I worked on that. What is church? Let me tell you what church is. Church is where we're confronted with the reality of Jesus' authority and it's the community of the yielded. Church is where we get together and go, we see that Jesus is the king and we'll do whatever he says. That's what church is. That's what church is. And this is huge. It means following him. It means being his disciple or coming under his leadership. And let me tell you, coming under his leadership might be dangerous. You realize there's a reason Jesus got killed. And it wasn't because he was telling people to love their neighbors. Yeah, it's because the humble reign of Jesus challenges every other rule, including earthly governments. Yeah. So some of us, even now, we find most of our identity in a political party. To the extent that you find your identity in a political party, you will be excluded from the reign of God. To the extent that we, that we put our trust in these forms, 
we will be excluded from the rule of God. Jesus is asking for 100% allegiance. What is church? All the allegiance. That's what it is. That's what it is. All the allegiance. Um, A lot of people inside and outside the church are super disappointed with our government all the time. Depending on whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, uh, your happiness is swayed by whoever has the office. Can I tell you? Mine's not. Why? Because I never gave my allegiance to it. My allegiance, 100% of it, belongs to Jesus. No one else gets it. This is it. The church is super dangerous. This means, this means all of my allegiance belongs to him. That's actually what this passage is about. You're the Messiah. You're the king. I see that in you. You're the son of God. And Caesar is not. All of my allegiance belongs to him. Church is where we're confronted with the reality that Jesus is not going to one day be king, but that he actually already is. This is it. This is it. All right. So number one, church is where we get confronted with Jesus questions. Listen, one of the things that should be happening here is as we gather over the months and years and, and decades as a, as a, a community and a, and a body of believers, uh, we should occasionally feel Jesus ask us intensely personal questions. Second thing, church is, church is where we receive revelation about Jesus. And, hey, this revelation is the rock that the church is laid on. What is the revelation? The revelation is that Jesus is the true king. And so because of that, there should occasionally, several things should happen that maybe we never imagined. When we get together, when we get together on Sunday mornings, it should occasionally, uh, we should occasionally be confronted with questions and not just answers. That's number one. Will you get answers here? Yeah, you'll get, you'll get some answers here occasionally. But if we, all, if we only get answers and we never get questions, it's not church. Okay? Uh, number two, church should occasionally be the place where we get scared. Some of us are like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I thought church was supposed to be where we get all of our fears handled. Well, all your fears will go away except for the ones that Jesus gives you. Because this moment with Jesus is actually dangerous stuff, and it's in some ways scary stuff, and there is in some element, there should be things that happen here that, that occasionally wake us up just a little bit. It should scare us because we should begin to wake up to the gravity of what we're being drafted into. That should, that should be a thing, a little bit. A church is also the place where we should occasionally be um, uh, angry or annoyed. What Jesus is asking us to do, He's asking us to leave things in such a dynamic way that it might be a little bit annoying and it might even make us angry, especially if we've given that part of our lives that he's asking for to someone else or to some other government or some other policy. Like if you come to the vineyard and you're never uh, slightly annoyed, something's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And then it should also be the place where you and I wake up to who Jesus really is. That's what this passage is all about. They've been traveling with Jesus, but it isn't until this moment that they begin to wake up to who he really is. That's what church is. And by the way, this is exactly what Paul's been saying to us the last couple of weeks as we've looked at church as the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The truth that the church hold up, holds up is Jesus Christ. Yeah. So when we wake up to Jesus, 
the thing that's formed is church. That's what it is. And also, the church has a, has a, has a natural way of waking people up to his lordship. The other thing I want to say to us about this is we wake up so that we can wake up. You know, one of the things that maybe you've heard before is, you know, salvation is just a one-time thing. I understand that. I'm not really here to argue about that, but I will tell you this. It's not true. Salvation just keeps happening. Salvation isn't just this one little time event. Now, do I think that if you just have one moment that, that you might end up going to hell? No, I don't think God's that petty. But here's what I think. I think that God is so big, and I think that His purposes are so broad, deep, and diverse, that you couldn't possibly get it all at once. I mean, you might get it, but you might not know that you get it. Yeah. My favorite example of this happened several years ago. Um, My computer sort of like crapped out on me. And I needed Bobby to fix it, which isn't unusual. And so Bobby fixed my computer, and what I didn't know is he put the new OS on it, right? So then he gives it back to me, and it mostly works the way it used to, right? Except for months, for months after that, I kept finding new things in the operating system that I didn't know were there. That's salvation. That's your life in Jesus. Like there's stuff on board you had no clue. You keep bumping into it. Oh, this thing's deeper than I thought, right? Like if it's true of an Apple computer, then how much more true is it of your own life with Jesus? So we wake up, we wake up, and every time we wake up, it actually broadens the frame a little wider so that we could wake up some more. And just so that you don't think that I'm some sort of heretic, I'll just show you in the scripture. We'll just use Peter as an example. Peter's in his boat. He's a fisherman. And Jesus says, why don't you drop the nets and follow me? And he does. And one of the first things that Peter finds out is that Jesus is a healer. Remember that little episode where Jesus raises up Peter's mother-in-law? Like she couldn't cook him dinner? (laughs) It's, It's like, I don't know what to make of that passage. Sometimes I read it with my wife. Hey, babe, I, got a, I have a scripture for it. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. But the first thing that Peter wakes up to is that Jesus is a healer. Now, how many of you all realize that, is Jesus a healer? Is that mostly what he is? No. Yeah. No, the frame needs to go wider. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is... He's doing weird stuff. Like he's doing really, really weird stuff. Like he's, um, like he's riding donkeys into town. Y'all know that little part? Hey guys, I'm going to wait here. Go into town. You'll find a, a young colt. When you find it, untie it. If anybody says anything to you, just tell them the Lord needs it. <laughs> it's a great plan, isn't it? Try that with a Cadillac. You know, try, just try it with a truck. No, really, Mr. Don Franklin, the Lord needs it. Yeah. So Peter wakes up to the fact that Jesus is a healer, but then he also wakes up to the fact that Jesus is a prophet, right? Jesus is doing these weird things. He's, he's, his actions are the word of God. It's not just his words are the word of God, but his actions are the word of God. You remember that time when... when Jesus curses the fig tree for not having figs. 
And here's the kicker. It's not the season for figs. There's a prophetic word you can get on board with. And then, then Peter wakes up to the fact, what we see this morning, we, we see Peter wake up to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus gets killed. And Peter's super bummed out. And he goes back to fishing. And then he has an encounter with the resurrected Lord. And he finds out a couple things there. No, number one, that Jesus is a forgiver. And not just universal, but it became personal. Oh, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. It's, it's the most intensely personal passage, I think, in the whole Bible. It's the end of the Gospel of John. It rips me every time I read it. But not only does he find out that Jesus is a forgiver, but then he finds out that, oh my gosh, he must be the second person of the Trinity. He's apparently God. He's been raised up. He's got the scars, right? And so Jesus is God. And then, and then a few days later, Peter finds out that Jesus is a baptizer. And not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. They're all in the upper room, and they're praying, and the Spirit comes. And it's exactly what Jesus said. Spirit comes. And then, see how the frame just keeps getting wider? How many times did Peter get saved? About a million. And then, then in the, in the book of Acts, Peter is well, he's basically lounging on the top of a roof. He's getting a suntan. And he has a vision, which is to say he had like a Christian hallucination. And, um, and, and essentially what he saw was a, a sheet that was lowered down and it had all these animals on it. And it had all the animals on it that, that he was basically told by his religion that he could never eat. Then he hears a voice from heaven say, Peter, get up and kill these animals and eat them. And he says, Lord, I've never done that. I'm, I've never broken your kosher laws, basically. And the Lord says, don't call what I'm calling clean, unclean anymore. Get up, kill him and eat. Then he hears a knock on the door. And then he hears the Holy Spirit say to him, there's some men here, go with them. Turns out the men are Gentiles. They're Romans sent by a guy named Cornelius, and he goes to Cornelius' house, and Peter preaches the gospel, and he doesn't even end the message. And the very same spirit that fell on all the Jews falls on all the Gentiles. How many of you know that was like a widening of the frame? And then he finds out that Jesus is an includer. And you and I, we're here because Peter found out that Jesus was an includer, right? Yeah. So, so some, of us, some of us have been saved... And what we need is we need to get saved some more. Some of us have a frame and we need the frame widened. That's what happens in your life. Your frame just keeps getting pushed out wider and wider. And so one of the things that happens at church is we wake up to the revelation of who Jesus is. And if the church is who the church is supposed to be, we keep waking up even more to who Jesus actually really is. Now, none of us are going to stop waking up, I hope. The other thing I want to say about this, it's real practical, is that a lot of people in this room are in a lot of different places. Some of, some of you are just waking up to the fact that Jesus is, is like a savior right now. And some of us in the room are waking up to the fact that Jesus is a king and that he actually has authority over your life. 
And let me just go into this for a minute. Like, if, if Jesus is the king, then he's the boss of your life. And he's the boss of my life. And this means that he's the boss of your money, who you have sex with, and what kind of words come out of your mouth, and uh, where you live. I mean, everything. Like, Jesus has an opinion, and it actually matters. I just, I just want to lay that out there. So we think that we can just do whatever we want and that Jesus, the Savior, is just going to cover it up. And you know what? He is so intensely kind and merciful. But Jesus, the King, has an opinion. Uh, we have almost no concept of that in America anymore. Especially, especially in our like, sexual and money lives. Like, Jesus, stay out of my sex life. I'm going to sleep with whoever I want to anytime I want. He actually cares, like, a lot. And he cares not because he wants to make you miserable. He cares because if you go down these paths, it will ruin your life. Let's just, let's just call it what it is. The two things that most put people in my office, sleeping with whoever they want and doing stupid things with money. Jesus intensely cares about these two things. Intensely. Yeah. So, a lot of people are in different places here in this church. Some of us have woken up to the fact that Jesus is a Savior and He has mercy for us, forgiveness, every single time. But He's also a King and He has a way to live. And His kingdom is really different. It is really, really different. Whatever you read in American pop culture, it's not His way. It's probably the opposite. And then other people in here are waking up to the fact that Jesus is a healer. Like that He wants to heal your own hurts, your own wounds, even your own body. And then furthermore, that he might want to use you to extend that healing into the world. And some of us are waking up to all kinds of things. And so what that means is that this church is currently filled with people who are in all kinds of different places with Jesus. And then furthermore, will always be filled with people who are in all different kinds of places with Jesus. A a couple things about that. Cut each other some slack. If somebody's seeing something in Jesus right now that you're not, that's okay. You don't have to go on some warpath to make sure that everybody's seeing Jesus as a healer. Why don't you just give it a minute, right? God's been generous and kind and patient with you. Let's just give it a minute. And if you're on the Jesus is the king trip, that's great. Why don't you just work that out and let somebody else come into that awakening when Jesus wants to bring them into that awakening? We can be a little bit generous. All right, number three. I'm going to try to go fast. Gosh, I'm going slow this morning. Um, third thing I see in this passage um, is that the powers of hell won't stand against it, which is essentially to say the church is on a mission. Some translations say not powers of hell, but gates of hell. Anybody have gates of hell? I like gates of hell better, but whatever. Such is life. Um, the thing I want to point out here is that th- this is in the church's DNA. This is in the church's DNA. What is in the church's DNA? Divine confrontation. That is in the church's DNA. And I want you to see that it's an offensive confrontation. Not offensive as in we offend people to offend people, but it's offense. It's not defense. We're not playing linebacker. We're playing running back. Okay? And I love this um, because of an image that John Wimber has about this very passage, founder of the vineyard. John Wimber used to say, How many of you have ever seen a person being chased down the street by a gate? Because he talks about how Jesus says, you know, hey, the gates of hell will not overcome it. How many of you have ever been chased down the street by a gate? It doesn't happen, does it? Why? Because gates don't run. Part of what Jesus is showing us in this passage is that the church has in her DNA running back. 
the church has in her DNA divine confrontation. We don't run away from gates because the gates aren't chasing us. They never run towards you. You go to them. We go to them. And so part of our call as the church is to approach the gates and the powers of hell. That's part of who we are. And what does it mean? Or what is the key that opens every gate? It's actually very simple. Yeah, you, don't, you don't need a spiritual warfare class. Uh, you don't need a special instruction in uh, demonology. Uh, you don't need uh, another book besides the Bible. Here's the only thing you need to open every gate. The revelation that Jesus is the king. That's it. People who try to tell you that you need a special key for special gates, they're selling you snake oil. There's only one key. It is Jesus. And the revelation that we need is that he is the king. Everything else is snake oil. Everything else is snake oil. But I want to tell you, this Jesus key, gosh, it has to be applied to every gate. We have, part of what it means to be the church is we, we realize, oh my gosh, we've been given a key. It's that Jesus is the king of the world. And we have to look around and go, where are the gates of hell still locking people up? Maybe locking me up. Right? It always starts right here. Who do you say that I am? Right? It's always personal and then it goes universal. Yeah. Some of us don't like the idea of the powers of hell or the gates of hell. Well, you can switch it out and just call it mission. That's fine. I like the more metal version though. See, the church is not an inward looking body. It's always reaching out. And when you extend the boundaries, you run into to resistance. And I just I want to share two things that this means because otherwise we just get super disappointed. The first thing this means, that the gates of hell will not prevail, that, that God has put offense into the church's DNA is, uh, number one, we can never lose sight of the call to take this Jesus thing further out. It has to touch someone besides me. And, and God wants to use you to touch other people with the Jesus is the king of the world key. That's what he wants to do. So call it what you want. Evangelism, uh, sharing salvation, bringing the kingdom, extending the good news. I don't care. Put any language on it you want. Uh, telling a Jesus story. Uh, it can never be something that just happens to you. It has to be something that comes through us to other people. Always. There's no way. We, we lose our churchness if we lo- let go of that. We lose it. And the second thing this means, um, drum roll, is uh, that there's always going to be a certain amount of trouble in your life. Now, the gates don't just want to swing open. I, I've, I've had many encounters with the gates of hell in my life. Uh, they don't normally just go swinging wide open, you know? Uh, you usually have to learn how to apply that Jesus is the king key. And... Part of what this means is that there's always going to be trouble in our lives. Uh, Part of the American dream is that if you work hard enough, save enough money, uh, become smart enough, read enough books, and get a Ph.D., that you can eventually position yourself not to have trouble. That will never happen. It will never happen in life, but then the other part is this. For Christians, it will never happen. It will never happen. If you stay a faithful part of the church, you will always have trouble. Always. You'll have trouble in here and you'll have trouble out there. There's always going to be trouble. The gates of hell, they're all kinds of places. There's a lot of them probably in your own heart. And so we're just going to 
keep confronting this stuff. We're going to keep confronting it. Here's the other thing. Jesus says it a slightly different way. He says, woe to you when everybody speaks well of you. Yeah. How, many, how long has it been since somebody, how long has it been since someone spoke, spoke evil of you, and not because you were actually evil and because you were a jackass, but how long has it been since somebody spoke evil of you because you actually did the Jesus thing? This is it. This is the thing. You're going to have trouble. We're going to have trouble. We have to get ready for trouble. We have to prepare our hearts for that. So, this morning we probably need to consider a couple things. We probably need to consider a couple things. If we've awakened to the kingship of Jesus, and I think probably most of us here have, we need to, we need to awaken to a couple things. We need to awaken to the fact that he's running the show. And if we've awakened to that reality, then we have to ask ourselves this question. Where do we see the king leading us? Now, here's the thing. This is at the end of the church meeting, and so we can think about that for a minute, and then we just let it go, you know? And then we just go right to lunch and get a mixed fajita, extra guacamole, no sour cream. And then you can just sort of like forget that. You know how, how I know you can forget it? Because I oftentimes forget it. I'm like, I'm the pastor and I forget this stuff. But I think one of the things that Jesus wants to do this morning, even this morning, is I think he wants us to consider this. And I actually think he might be asking us this question. Where is King Jesus leading us? Okay? Individually and then corporately. Here's the thing I'd like you to consider this morning, right before we pray, and then I'd like you to consider it all week long. Is there a particular gate of hell that Jesus is asking you to go to this week? Like this week. Maybe there's a gate of hell in your life that's, that's pinning you in, and it's pinning you in because it's, it's being locked behind unforgiveness. Like maybe somebody legitimately burnt your toast, Right? And maybe Jesus wants you to deal with that this week. Or maybe you legitimately know people who are not okay. Like maybe you have a neighbor who's about to divorce his wife because hell has just locked him in. And maybe, maybe you don't need to be quiet, but maybe you need to make an appeal for reconciliation and kindness and mercy. Right? Or maybe you just look around town and you go... Gosh, we got people who are whacked out on drugs and maybe Jesus is asking you to do something really specific. Maybe you don't have to fix the whole problem, but maybe Jesus is asking you to, to meet one drug addict where they're at. Where are the gates of hell? Like, we, we can't lose sight of this. It's not about just coming here. It has to go out further. Or maybe, maybe Jesus is saying, like, where you work. Like, where you work. Maybe there's that person at work who's just a freaking bear. Right? Listen, they're not going to go away. If you get promoted, they'll be there. If you get a new job, there'll be another version of that same person. Right? And maybe Jesus is asking you to find out where the, where the distortion is coming from. Another metal reference. <laughs> How, it's time. 
I've gone really long. I'm sorry. Um, but I do want to hit that one more time. When people are super crazy and when people are super nasty, especially at work and, and in our neighborhoods and where we, where we meet them, when people are really, really annoying, how many of you realize that all of that is coming from someplace? All the distortion is coming from some place. Those, those harmonics, they're coming from some place. Maybe Jesus wants you to find out where they come from. You can usually find out by just asking a question or two. Number one, how's your dad? <laughs> the people who are not laughing have never been to therapy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyway. Hey, why don't you stand up this morning? If you're on ministry team, come on up. The kids are crying in the cafe. Pastor Adam's gone too long. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.